Hi everyone, welcome back to Hitchcock University where you learn filmmaking from the masters. Uh, I want to apologize, there's a little bit of noise going outside. I'm still in this uh, 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 kind of pseudo-amateur studio that I've been using. Um, and there's a bunch of people outside. I'm not sure if they're coming or going. Anyway, so if you hear that in the background, I apologize. Uh, but there's not really a lot I can do about it today. Um, last time we talked about New York, New York, this class session we're going to talk about a classic uh, Raging Bull, one of Marty's calling cards. So we need to start looking at this film through the lens of New York, New York and the reception of it. As I mentioned last time, New York, New York wasn't really received that well. Um, and that left Marty in kind of an interesting place. Uh, he was uh, he was in a bad place as well. He was uh, burned out uh, on drugs, uh, got very, very sick, um, and was really upset that a movie that he poured so much time and effort into uh, hadn't done very well at all. Um, so by the time Raging Bull comes around, Marty kind of figures this is going to be his last feature film, at least in the United States, and probably what he was going to do and, and, and what he wanted to do was just move to Europe and make documentaries, and that's it. However, Raging Bull saved his career, and I think we can all thank uh, or, or be thankful for that. If you haven't seen Raging Bull, um, I kind of understand it. Um, it's not a movie that a lot of people talk about these days, um, but it is, it is still canonized. Uh, in in sort of the greatest movies, at least of that decade of of the 1980s, um, but basically the movie's about Jake LaMotta and Jake LaMotta, and not even really about Jake LaMotta so much, but about this character that Marty and Bobby created, that was inspired by Jake LaMotta, who was a boxer that I think Marty really um, M Marty identified correctly by calling him self-destructive. That's really what the movie's about. It's about this kind of rise and fall, as a lot of Marty's movies are, about a uh, uh, self-destructive individual. And I can't really talk about this movie without talking about Marty and Bobby De Niro. We've talked a little bit about their history, how they met before Mean Streets, and how they were raised in the same area and had mutual friends. and you know, started working together and had this real collaboration kind of thing going on. But I really want to dive into that collaboration specifically as it applies to this film because I think it's important to understand how they worked together, not just that they worked together. And I think there's some things that we can learn about understanding one of the, I mean, one of the greatest uh, actor-director collaborations maybe of all time. In fact, in fact Scorsese's last film, or next, or his next film, which will be released on Netflix, called *The Irishman*, is a, a, a reuniting of Marty and Bobby. Um, they haven't worked together since *Casino*, which was released in '95, I believe. Um, so, yeah, let's dive into Marty and Bobby real quick. Um, first of all, they really trust each other. Marty trusts Bobby's instincts, his acting instincts, to just and his improv instincts to just kind of go wherever he feels like it. And Bobby trusts Marty that he's not going to put him in a situation where he'll look stupid or, you know, won't come off the way he needs to. And, and not only that, but trusts Marty in the editing. Because remember, Marty is an editor's director 
first and foremost. He loves editing and understands the process of editing. Spends a lot of time in the edit bay with Thelma Screenmaker, who, by the way, this was the first time that they'd been reunited since uh, their NYU days because she was finally a member of the union. And Marty doesn't really craft performances on the set so much. He just encourages the actor to kind of do, you know, try anything. And then he'll mess around with it in, in post and sort of select the takes that he feels are, are best for the character in that moment. And, and Bobby trusts Marty. You know, he'll go to bat for himself if he doesn't think Marty chose the right take. But at the end of the day, he understands that Marty's the director and he'll, he'll say, you know what, it's your movie. And if that's the take you want, then that's the take we'll do. But they also trust each other's instincts on stories and, and what project they should take on next. So like with New York, New York, Marty comes to Bobby and says, hey, I want to do this, this big MGM musical. And Bobby's, you know, and I want you to play the lead. And Bobby's like, I don't know if I can do that. I'm not sure that's really my thing. You know, I got to learn to play the saxophone and all this, you know, because he's more of a method actor, all this kind of thing. But if that's the movie you want to do, I'm not, you know, this isn't my project. But if that's what you want to do, let's do it. So then when Bobby comes to Marty with the script for Raging Bull, and Marty's burned out, and he doesn't really want to do this, and he doesn't really understand this character, and he doesn't really like boxing, he's like, uh, I, I don't want to do this, but if, if I'm the only director you're going to, that, that you, my friend, are going to let do this movie, then let's do it. And eventually Marty found his way into the story and began to understand the character and began to find a way to personally connect with the material, even though it wasn't, you know, the first place he would go. Um, you know, but Marty, Marty went with it. And another interesting aspect of this movie in particular is neither of them took a writing credit, but basically they had two drafts of the script. They had one that Marty had Marduk Martin do that they weren't really happy with. Uh, Marduk Martin was a, uh, 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 well, yeah, I mean, he goes back to the NYU days. Uh, he was one of the writers on Mean Streets. He was one of the writers on um, uh, Who's That Knocking at My Door, etc. And then they gave the script to Paul Schrader, who, of course, wrote Taxi Driver. And there were some things in it that they liked, but there were some other things that, that Bobby specifically, remember, this was his passion project, wasn't really on board with. But Schrader was like, hey, this is your guys' movie. I got other stuff I can be doing. So if you're not happy with this, I'm not going to bother with the second second draft. They're like, well, can we have it? And can we workshop it? He's like, yeah, sure. Go right ahead. So they go off to an island for like two weeks and just work on this script all day for two weeks. You know, they start improvising scenes and they, you know, they start rewriting almost everything to the point where after those two weeks – the two of them had figured out the story and figured out basically the script and the movie. And that's how close their collaboration is. You don't think of an actor as coming in and helping to rewrite a script. Maybe a director, but typically you don't hear a lot of actors helping to do that. But that's what Bobby did on this film. So that's kind of an insight into, into Marty and Bobby's you know, collaborative relationship. And, and I think it's important to keep in mind as we talk about this film because it is, it is almost as much Bobby's film as it is Marty's. It would not exist today if Bobby had not pushed Marty and saying, I really want to do this film and I think you're the perfect director for this. We wouldn't have Raging Bull without that. 
Bobby really pushed this film forward. But obviously it's Marty's masterful filmmaking that helps make it what it is. And that's one of the reasons, of course, that that I'm sure Bobby said, Marty, you got to do this. So there's, there's two really impressive stylistic elements of this film that most people latch onto immediately. There's the cinematography and there's the sound. And those two things were actually were actually collaborated on with people that Marty brought back from Taxi Driver. He brought back Michael Chapman as the DP, and he brought back uh, Frank Warner as sort of the, I think he's listed as the sound effects supervising editor. But basically, he's the sound effects guy. And they were incredibly crucial in creating this subjective filmmaking. This is something that, that Hitch talked a lot about, and Marty, Marty's really into as well. His idea of creating an experience that isn't really capturing the plot points, but it's capturing an experience through the perspective and, and being able to put the audience in those moments with your main character or, or, or with your characters. Not, not so much a literal telling of events, but more of an immersion into Jake LaMotta's POV. So let's talk about the visuals first. The first thing that you're going to notice immediately is it's a black and white film, right? Now, there's a few reasons for doing that. One of the biggest reasons that, that Marty says over and over and over again is that there were like five other boxing movies coming out that year. Because remember, Rocky had just come out three or four years before this. So there's this new boxing movie craze that's going on where because Hollywood's a, a, a very reactionary uh, industry. Um, so there's all these other boxing movies that are coming out. And, and that was one of the things that he'd always tell the producers of the studio. They're like, why are you doing this in black and white? It's like, you got a whole bunch of, there's five other boxing movies coming out this year. You know, we have to separate ourselves from them. And they're like, yeah, okay, I guess. Um, obviously, it's a period film. It takes place mostly from the 40s through the 60s. And so our cinema was captured on 35mm black and white. And for a lot of us, that's really the only experience we have with the period. And so if you're making a movie about the period, then why not make it kind of feel like a movie from the period? So it's black and white. But the last thing, and this, this might actually have been the first thing, was they did some tests with Bobby in the ring with, with his gloves on. And they showed it to Michael Powell. Michael Powell was Thelma Schoonmaker's husband and also one of Marty's heroes. Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger were the premier British filmmakers uh, pre-war and post-war and during the war even. Uh, they made films like The Red Shoes, uh, Black Narcissus, um, Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, which actually had a number of influences on this film, um, etc. You know, big-time British filmmakers who were um, massive influences on Marty. So he shows this test to Michael Powell, and Michael Powell says, something's wrong. Oh, I know what it is. Those gloves are wrong, the boxing gloves that Bobby had were bright red and the gloves of the era were more of like an ox blood or a brown and you know that's something you could do you just tell your prop department hey i need you know period style gloves but marty's like right the colors see that got him thinking not just about the colors of the gloves but the colors through the whole film and trying to trying to immerse the audience in that period 
you know, specifically through Jake's POV. And so at that point, Marty was like, you know, maybe we need to do this black and white. And they asked, he talked to everybody. He talked to Bobby. He talked to Joe Pesci. He talked to everybody, you know, obviously his DP, his production designer, etc. And everybody was like, yeah, black and white. That makes so much sense. We have to do that. Everybody was on board for it. For whatever, for whatever reason, it was the most intuitive idea that came out of the script was that the movie had to be in black and white, which I think is funny. You know, the next thing about the visuals that everyone's going to look at are the fights. Each fight has its own style, and they're they're all incredible. Um, for example, there's there's the first win that we see Jake LaMotta have in the ring, and it's bright and well lit, like really brightly lit. Everything's nice and crisp, and and they actually cut the rain and put inserts in to make it huge. Not just shoot it on wide lenses, but actually expand the rain itself so it feels expansive and that he's got all this room to work in and all this kind of stuff. But then his next fight, which is a loss, and the visual style was actually, for this fight, was, was inspired by Jake's memory of the fight. The fight for Jake, for, for the real Jake LaMotta, sort of hazy and fuzzy and... You know, because it was, he felt that it was, it, it was a decision by the judges, not actually, uh, like he didn't knock knock out Sugar Ray Robinson or get knocked out by Sugar Ray. It was just, you know, the judges decided and he felt he was robbed. So he has this very strange, you know, not very crisp memory of that fight. Um, and so what they did was, it's dark and smoky and almost imprecise in the shooting there's one shot where except that it was planned that's the funny thing is that there's this there's this shooting style that feels very rough but it was actually very intentional where like um you know bobby sits down you know on the stool in the corner between rounds and as he sits down one of the um one of the ropes around the ring covers practically his whole face um you know and 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 they shot it from way far back on these really long telephoto lenses that marty marty typically doesn't like shooting on because he feels that they're very indistinct and kind of abstract and they don't really they don't really ground you in where you are but that was the point you know and then they put put gas pipes with a little bit of flame in front of the lens to give this kind of miragey um dreamlike liquidy almost effect on screen and some schoonmaker says it's like you're watching a fight in the depths of hell that that's what it feels like um, and she's very right about that uh, and I, I don't know for sure if that's something that Marty intentionally expressed that that's what he was going for but um, but don't but but she at least is is 100% right on on the effect that it has um, and then there's another fight where, where Jake's letting this one guy just wail on him. He's just getting the stop beat out of him. And one thing that Marty very intentionally did was keep the cameras out inside the ring. Try to be in there with Jake so you feel the intensity of the fights. Not, not shoot it like Rocky or any other boxing movie where, where the cameras are outside looking in. But actually, be in there in those moments and feel the hits. You know, it's sort of it's sort of the same same technique that that Hitchcock used for car chases. We talked about that in the Family Plot episode, where you want to stay in the car and feel the emotions with the actors. The minute you come outside of the car, you've lost that subjectiveness, and that's the thing that Marty's trying to keep 
with this film, staying in there with the actors. So like I said, there's this fight where, where Jake's just letting this other guy wail on him. And we're outside the ring. And then the minute Jake stops taking a beating and starts returning fire, the camera zooms right between the ropes and comes back in the ring. And we're in the ring for the rest of the fight, which isn't long. Um, there's a fight that Jake throws. He takes a dive in the vernacular of the sport. And again, it's one of the few fights where we spend any significant time outside the ring because <coughs> we're there for Jake's perspective. And the minute we cut outside the ring, we start including the audience, and the audience can tell that he's throwing the fight, and they're hurling insults at him and just telling him to get out, get out of the ring, you know, that kind of thing. And, and that's important for for us to understand how Jake's feeling at that moment. We can feel the pressure of that audience closing in on him. So yeah, those are the fights. You know, every one of them's got a different style. I didn't even cover all of them. Um, that's just a few. The other thing, the, the last key element of the visuals, this, this motif that keeps popping up, is the slow-mo or the overcranking, or the high frame rate, however you want to call it, high speed. There's a lot of slow-mo in this film. And and the first thing Marty Marty decided was every time we do a slow-mo shot, we're going to do it at three different speeds. We're going to do it like 90 frames a second, um, like 48 frames a second, and 120 frames a second or something. Something like that. And then he would figure out which which one to use in the edit, which one kind of fit it best. Because remember, you don't have a monitor. So you don't really know how it's going to play out until you get it in there. And... Uh, I don't think Marty had done a lot with slow-mo up to this point, so it was important for him to have choices, which that makes sense. But they reserved it for very key moments. They reserved it for, for moments where you're not getting Jake's POV necessarily, not a true POV anyway, not a literal POV, but sort of a subjective POV, or as Hitchcock would refer to it, subjective treatment. And, 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 and it would key in on things that he's noticing. You know, when a guy is talking to his wife or something like that. Or, or, you know, he thinks maybe his brother's trying to pull one over on him or something like that. So Marty says they use the slow-mo to really hone in on certain moments there. Um, and as he puts it, it's as, if, it's as if we're watching the memories being burned in, into Jake's head. Which is it's super effective. Um, but they did an interesting thing. They'd shoot it slow-mo, but they'd let the the sound play at the normal speed underneath it. So the sound isn't necessarily synced up with the moments, but the sound is very intelligible, and there's this interesting contrast with the slow-mo that plays very well. But it's that sound that we're going to talk about next. The first sound effects track they laid in to Raging Bull was very literal. It was very straightforward, and it wasn't... It didn't have that same punch that the visuals, not to, sorry, pun not intended, um, didn't have that same effect that the visuals did. So they figured, okay, we need to we need to create this same subjectivity in the soundtrack. So Frank comes in with all kinds of different things. He's got drums and animal noises and stuff that he's speeding up and slowing down and doing all kinds of stuff to create these effects. He's got flashbulb effects that are several different sounds layered. Um... And he wouldn't tell Marty what any of them were, you know. Um, but it really fills in the subjective experience. And it plays very nicely with the visuals. 
But something really important that, that, that Frank Warner did and something that he taught Marty that has gone on with him since, you know, ever since, and that's silence. It's these moments where you actually pull the sound out and then that can be even more effective. And there's several moments where they did that, where they just completely pull the sound and just let the visuals play, or maybe have very little in the sound and like really drop it down way, way, way low. And that's something that Marty has taken with him ever since. It's another thing that he learned, much like, much like with New York, New York, Marty learned to to choreograph everything to the music before he even got on the set, and that stayed with him forever and ever. Marty also began to understand the value of silence in a film. Because it is a visual medium. You can have entire sequences with no sound at all. And and if you play it right, they can be really, really dramatic. And so that's something that 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 I just wanted to point out. Um, that's all I have for Raging Bull. Uh, thank you again for listening to Hitchcock University, where you learn filmmaking from the masters. I'm Taylor Bickle. Um, remember to you follow us on Hitchcock University on Facebook or Hitch underscore U as in University on Twitter. You can also email me, HitchcockUniversity at gmail.com. Uh, thank you again for listening. I uh, hope to see you again or hope to have you back uh, for our next class session on The King of Comedy in two weeks and then The Color of Money and then uh, The Last Temptation of Christ. Uh, thanks again.